Hey there, welcome back to the Truth to Forgiveness to show, and we're gonna listen to some and the Tony Michael's president's run of bad oh, luck. Trump news oh, today. Oh, nice. Rolling along, remember rolling, rolling, rolling. Special master has just uh, about had it with the legal team, and I remind you, this is their handpicked special master. <laughs> this is really a put up or shut up <laughs> Judge Raymond Deary ordering the Trump team to back up. His out-of-court claims that the FBI somehow planted evidence during their search of Mar-a-Lago. Back it up or put up or shut up, as they say. The search that turned up more than 100 classified documents. Now, the judge wants him to give him a sworn declaration with a list of specific items that they claim were planted. And that's the thing. This is about facts. It's about evidence. You can't just make wild accusations in court without a shred of evidence, even if that is your main M.O. out in the court of MAGA opinion. The judge also considering testimony from, quote, witnesses with knowledge of irrelevant facts. And let's not forget, the former president would have you believe that he could declassify documents just by, by thinking about it, which is not a thing. Senator Republicans not buying that either. Up here, we take it very seriously. Um, people can get hurt. People can get killed if it's not stored correctly and if that information gets out. Well, plus problems mounting for Vladimir Putin. At the UN today, world leaders slamming him over his invasion of Ukraine while he is scrambling to restore his battered war machine. And sources tell CNN personally giving directions to generals in the field. That is, he calls up 300,000 citizens and reservists to fight in Ukraine, a mobilization not seen since World War II. And meanwhile, Russians who want to avoid the mobilization are crowding the borders, while the families left behind say goodbye to loved ones they know that they may, may never see again. But is a desperate Putin an even more dangerous Putin? And how much support does he still have from the Russian people? We've got more to come on this later on in the broadcast. We've got a lot to cover in the couple of hours that we have with you this evening. But I want to begin right now with CNN Senior Legal Analyst Laura Coates and National Security Attorney Bradley Moss. Good evening to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Um, Laura, let's see. Let's talk about this special master, which was the handpicked special master from Team Trump overseeing this Mar-a-Lago docs, ordering uh, Trump's team to back up their claims that the FBI possibly planted evidence. He is telling Trump's lawyers, really, to put up or shut up. Exactly. And it's when you can file this all under, be careful what you wish for, team litigation Trump, because you just might get it. You've asked for a special master with credentials who has the experience judicially to be able to understand what they are looking for. The FISA court experience about the notion of classified documents versus unclassified, the idea of privilege versus non-privilege. But ultimately, you have somebody who's in a position to know the difference between the court of public opinion, Don, and the court of law. What you can say in the court of public opinion might be much more expansive, but what's required in a court of law is that if you make an allegation or an assertion, you have to actually substantiate it. Here, this special master is saying, similar to what Glenn Circuit said just yesterday, look, you have articulated your client. Electrify your metabolism back to teenage levels by eating one half teaspoon of this with water and burning fat like you're still in high school. Articulated. All these notions about either planting evidence or declassifying documents, where is that statement in a court of law? If it's not there, that is not going to bode well for the overall assessment. And frankly, it might actually translate into the court of the electorate or the court of public opinion as to the veracity 
credibility of all of the claims that he has made regarding that search on his estate. Bradley, the special master is also opening the door to witness testimony, which is uh, kind of surprising. There have been a lot of questions about the, the chain of custody and also who may have moved the documents from the basement uh, to Trump's office. Who do you think could be called as witnesses, a witness or witnesses? Yeah, so there's any number of people who work or worked at Mar-a-Lago who would potentially be relevant. There's obviously uh, Donald Trump, some of his former, or sorry, some of his personal attorneys who are not working on this per, uh, current particular civil litigation. You think of Alina Abba, you think of Christina Bob. Now, there's obvious issues there. There's privilege issues. There's what they could talk about and the extent to which this is within the special master's authority. But to you know, kind of supplement what Laura was saying, this is all a problem of Donald Trump's own making he brought this civil litigation when he didn't need to he, he to gave doj back, the opening the to provide the public with more information about what was going and on that he didn't need to yells, let them do them and back. now he's got both the 11th circuit and the special master breathing down his Starting neck telling him espionage. what are you doing here you Call can't just make these wild accusations you have to back it up with sworn affidavits you have to back it up with exhibits you've done none of that we're not going to play games with this stuff. Either you provide the evidence or your case is done. Yeah. Well, listen, you know this. A lot of people will say, especially when it's a high-profile person, they want the court of public opinion. They think that they can sway people. They think that they can sort of push the legal system into what they're thinking. I mean, with this, I want to continue to talk about what you said and what Bradley just said. I mean, what does it say that both the special master and the 11th Circuit are taking on Trump's public claims that haven't been put forward in legal filings? declassifying um, the possibility of planted evidence and, and so on and so forth. You mean the idea of what his interview with I think Sean Hannity was to suggest that you could declassify somehow through telepathy, Don? I mean, the idea that you could just think about something and all of a sudden it goes away. Oh, a nuclear secret. You know, when we think about it, I guess it goes away. Classified documents. When we think about it, no longer classified. I mean, the absurdity of these statements is very much that self-inflicted wound. And so the judges have the benefit of really two things. One, the facts before them and the absence of evidence. And also, they're remembering back to a time not so long ago when there were similar statements made in the court of public opinion about evidence of voter-related fraud, about election-related lies. Mm -hmm. And then when asked in a court of law to support that, yep. to substantiate it in some way, they did not. So in some respects, not only are we seeing the judges learning from what's happened in this particular exclusive matter, but they're learning from experience based on other instances where there has been a statement made by the former president in the court of public opinion trying to inject and infuse it with a particular narrative. And then when a court of law, their brethren and sisters of the court, there's crickets there. So unfortunately, he is, I think, now becoming the victim of his own making in the sense of every web of statements that are unsubstantiated creates an opportunity for really a, um, him to undermine his own cases and matters even before there's a single criminal charge. Here's the interesting thing, Bradley. I think, you know, Donald Trump has been very litigious. That is no secret, right? That's what the evidence shows. And he has been able to wait people out, right, financially, um, you know, and have them spend a lot of money and then have things just go away because people don't want to be entangled with the legal system and they don't want the fees. So what do you expect? This this instance is, is different, right? So what do you expect Trump's lawyers to do? I mean, they have a client that makes a lot of claims about the FBI, about seized documents. But so far, Trump's attorneys have 
have been more restrained. It would be a crime if they knowingly lied in court, correct? Correct. Absolutely. They don't want to commit perjury or suborn perjury. And the lawyers who've recently come on all know who Michael Cohen is. They all know who Rudy Giuliani is. They all know who Sidney Powell is. They don't want to go that way. They don't want to either go to prison or find their licenses at risk. So they're going to try to find this middle ground with this client who doesn't listen to them, who forgets that he has the right to remain silent. And if he doesn't, things can be held against him. They're going to try to thread this needle and what they actually put forward to the court and the arguments they use to just try to drag this out. They're not expecting to win anything with the civil litigation as far as I'm concerned. They know the law is not on their side. Their goal is one thing, to drag this out, to muck up the process, make it so that the government can't bring itself, can't, sorry, can't finally get to a decision on whether or not to bring an indictment or not in this case and make it so that we get closer and closer to November 2024, at which point all this could get shut down if either Donald Trump or someone favorable to him were to win the presidency. Well, here's what I don't understand, Bradley. Why on earth, I mean, if it was your client, wouldn't you, uh, wouldn't you like handcuff him and lock him in the room so that he wouldn't go on television and do an interview and, and possibly make things worse for you? Why are they, why on earth are they allowing him to go on television and make claims and then have the special master say, oh, you're going to make those claims, then show them. So prove it. Well, let's, let's be really honest. It's all about the money. All right. The only lawyers he's got that are actually willing to work for him at this point are ones who are demanding things up front, like a $3 million retainer. You're entitled to get hire any lawyer you want. The lawyers are not even required to agree to be hired. The only lawyers who are left are those who are simply not ready or qualified to handle this situation. Or basically told Donald Trump, look, you can do whatever you want because it's your life and it's going to be your potential freedom at issue. I will do what I can within the bounds of the ethics rules to defend you in court. I won't suborn perjury and I won't commit perjury myself. I won't do what apparently you know, Christina Bob may have done and potentially have committed perjury and lied to the feds. But you can go off and do that stuff and say whatever you want to say to Sean Hannity because it's your life. As long as my check clears, I got what I want. Laura, Judge Raymond Deary is someone Trump's team put forward as a candidate for a special master. Did they think they'd get someone more favorable? I'm sure they did. I think, Don, their hope was that he would be somebody who had an axe to grind against the FBI. Remember that Judge Deary was on the... If you brush your teeth every day, but still have tooth and gum problems, then this video could save your life. Oh my God. ...a court that's the one, the court that oversees surveillance of individuals, and one of the people that the FBI had put forth before this judge as a part of the FISA court was Carter Page. I remember Carter Page had this infamous three-time renew uh, warrant to surveil him, but then ultimately the Inspector General's office of the FBI found that it was problematic to say the least. And so one of the times it was actually um, sworn to and allowed to go forward was under this very judge. So I suppose the Trump litigation team may have been hoping that they had planted enough of a seed of doubt in the mind of this judge to suggest that it was fair game to doubt the credibility of law enforcement, particularly the FBI. Of course, what you have found is that this judge so far, we don't know everything that's going to happen, but so far, this judge is adhering to what he is asked to look at. Remember, it was either classified documents review, they've said no now from the circuit court, or the idea of privileged documents, neither of which relates to a potential axe to grind, and frankly, to suggest that he would 
proceed under that notion would really belie what we've known to have been his credibility on the bench and tenure for the better part of three decades. If you make a claim, you got to prove it. That's what happens in a court of law. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Thanks at home for Vladimir Putin are rising tonight. He is continuing to raise them as well in Ukraine because tomorrow a series of referendums are going to be held on bringing areas occupied by Russia in that country into the Russian state. If that happens, senior Russian officials are again warning that nuclear weapons could be used to defend those territories if they continue to be attacked. Back to you, Don. All right. Matthew, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis vowing those migrant flights to Martha's Vineyard were just the beginning, but not if my next guest has anything to say about it. Stay with us. What is this going to be so Florida Governor Ron DeSantis vowing to transport more migrants from the border, but a Florida lawmaker is trying to stop it. Tonight, he's filed a lawsuit against DeSantis to block him from transporting any more migrants from the southern border awesome. to other states. Thank that you. That lawmaker is, is Florida is State Senator Jason Pizzo, and he joins me now. Senator, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. And it's, I mean, it's very, uh, the timing couldn't be better that you're here because you just filed this lawsuit about an hour ago, and you say that the governor and his administration broke the law when they paid for flights to move Venezuelan migrants from Texas to Massachusetts. Tell us about the case that you're making. It's uh, thanks for having me on, Don, and for and for uh, reporting on this very critical issue in the state of Florida. This past legislative session, just a few months ago, two bills were passed and signed into law. One was the appropriations bill, where all of the state revenue and budget goes, and the other one was an immigration-related bill uh, that prohibited certain activity uh, for people to be transported. And both of those bills, which again the governor signed into law very simply said uh, that only money could be used for the transporting of unauthorized aliens from the state of Florida. And by all reports, all accounts, even his own braggadocio, you know, repeatedly, uh, operatives were sent in from the vendor into Texas to gather and corral up a group of people, take a pit stop on the tarmac in Florida, call that being from Florida, and then off to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, But this is a very narrowly tailored uh, injunctive relief, prayer for relief, just to stop making these payments. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about it, because this is a justification for the flights. He says he's pointing to a provision in the state budget that sets aside $12 million for a, a new program to transport migrants unlawfully in the United States. What's your response to that? Uh, I'm a bit of a textualist. So what it actually says uh, is that the Florida Department of Transportation is required to implement a program. That program has to receive at least two bids. We have no indication that there were two bids. Uh, and the allocation appropriation of $12 million to be Thank spent, again, on very important, media. on unauthorized aliens. And we can question the immigration status of the individuals that were brought here from Texas. Not all of them are unauthorized, if, if any, because they were processed and paroled into the system. And second, from this state. And Don, very clearly, by all indications, all reports, videos, testimony, other lawsuits filed, nobody originated here in Florida. No dollar can be spent outside of Florida. Okay, so the migrants on these flights were um, not from Florida, as you said. He's repeatedly suggested that the action was validated because Florida is in the final destination of many migrants. Is that a fair assessment? It's about as fair of an assessment as it's saying that instead of flying up here to Tallahassee, the state capital, and spending you know the night with my kids, um, you know 
in anticipation of where I might be next week, you have no idea. So to try to get into the head of 48 migrants of, of where they intend to go or may matriculate to is so anticipatory and so, so attenuated that it, it should find absolutely no place in the law, nor will it. Senator, DeSantis has vowed to transport more migrants from the border. He said that the flights to Martha's Vineyard were just the beginning, and he, he's not backing down at all. Watch this. Now everybody is talking about it. And look, they're busing to New York City, D.C., all, all this stuff. And, and, and that's not the solution, though. The solution is to recognize the policy has failed and to change the policy. And you could do that very easily in ways that have been proven to work. So hopefully... We're going to be talking about this he a lot more a now. Nervous. This was not an issue of concern even two weeks ago. Now it seems to be on the front burner, so we're proud he of it. fucking thrown in jail if he's not... Interesting. So, Senator, he gets a lot of applause for, for this at his rally, so clearly it is a hot-button political issue. It, it is to his base. And, and, Don, for the past four years that I've been in the state Senate, it's been less about Democrats versus Republicans, the ideology or policy. It's more about Republicans sort of distinguishing and distancing themselves uh, to their base and showing who could be more right of the other one. Here, here's the deal. And, and this is, it really gets kind of sentimental and personal for me. Uh, like Governor DeSantis, we both are the great grandsons of women who came here from Italy who were illiterate and who took out a claim for themselves and their families and worked very hard and came up through the system and had the benefit of every opportunity available in the United States. I just seem to remember it and try to cherish that and work towards that. And he likes to forget it to play to his base and not to his ancestry. This is just cruel and inhumane. And that's that's the focus of our bill is to stop the wasteful, unlawful spending outside of the state of Florida. Okay, so you did this tonight. So what comes next for you? Hey, you with the low main. Time to start selling homes. What? Let's make this real, Mr. Realtor. I'm hoping to get a, an emergency hearing tomorrow. I'll remain here in the state capitol until we hear from the circuit court here in Leon County, Florida, in Tallahassee. Uh, and if we don't get it tomorrow, then I'll remain until we do. All right. Thank you, Senator Pizzo. Appreciate it. And thank you. Please come back and update us. Thank you so much. What's his name? Thank you, sir. A Republican congressional candidate coming out swinging against oh, women's God. suffrage. What century is this? I'll talk about it next. Election deniers, conspiracy theorists, and now someone who is rallied against women's suffrage. When Senator Mitch McConnell warned his party about their, quote, candidate quality, is this what he was talking about? Joining me now, CNN political commentators Anna Navarro and Margaret Hooper. I mean, we could be good evening. We could be here all night about this. I mean, don't you think, Margaret? There's enough material. Okay, so listen, I have to go over these names, so let me put on let me put on my glasses here. The GOP's got they've got a lot of extreme candidates on the ballot. In Ohio's ninth congressional district, the Republican Congressional Committee seems to be losing faith in congressional candidate J.R. Majewski, uh, pulling their ads. He is an election denier. He was also at the Capitol on January sixth. He has repeatedly shared pro. Uh, QAnon material. He's running against Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur, who has been in office for nearly 40 years. How is this playing out, Margaret? It's playing out for a much smaller like margin that Kevin McCarthy is likely to have in his majority. Like, let's not kid ourselves. It is still likely that Republicans hold the House of Representatives. But Kevin McCarthy was hoping for a 40 person majority in House Representatives. And that number just ticks down and down and down. They pulled a million dollars 
of ads for somebody in a Trump plus three district in Ohio that should have been a walkaway race. And instead, they've got these crazies. By the way, your question was, is candidate quality what Mitch McConnell was talking about when he said this? You just talked about members of the House of people who are running for House. He was talking about the Senate, Senate right? Right. I mean, but, he, that goes, but I thought he was talking close. about candidates in general. But he was saying, but to the point, they're still going to hold the House, not maybe not the Senate. Uh, and that's I, a candidate I, quality. I, now I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. So GOP congressional candidate John Gibbs, this is for you, Anna, once argued that America has suffered since women's suffrage. Uh, he ran a think tank in early 2000s, and this is what uh, K-File dug up, okay? The K-File dug up that he said that we conclude that increasing the size and scope of government is unequivocally bad, and since women's suffrage has caused this to occur on a larger scale than any other cause in history, we conclude that the United States has suffered as a result of women's suffrage. What does it say about the candidate quality here? What does this say? I'll tell you what what what, what I I just couldn't believe. Want women to I mean, he just had his picture up. Did you notice something about him? That he's black. That he's black. In other words, he didn't have a right to vote for a very long time yeah. until the Constitution was changed. His people. So, right. So so right. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. I guess, his I guess, ancestors yeah, yeah, right. didn't have, you know, and so for a. An African-American man to be against women's suffrage, to be praising an organization that wants to abolish the 19th Amendment is hypocritical. It's crazy. It's shameful. <laughs> it's uh, like 200 year ago type policy. I mean, really, th th this guy should be running for Congress of cavemen, well, not for Congress in 2022. Well, Margaret, he said that women did not possess the characteristics necessary to government. Neither does he. He doesn't how, possess a brain. But how does someone like that end up being a candidate? Come Here's on. why. Um, thank you for asking me. I was hoping we would get to solutions instead of the inanity that has become the base of the Republican Party. Closed partisan primaries. Just say that over and over again. Closed partisan primaries cater to the most extreme and the most fringe in a part in parties where special interest special interest used to be the problem. Now it's just conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and crazy sort of flat earth society. Women can't vote. Women can't think for themselves. And, and it is. It is. The, the party is not just the party of Trump. It is the party of conspiracy theories. It is a party of you know, the big lie, all that. And this party kind of, of stuff. But by the way, this On a is huge a scale. D plus five to nine district. Peter Meyer, That's the Republican who yeah. voted for impeachment and frankly, had DCCC money run against him so that this clown could lose the seat to the DCCC. That's my next question. How does that happen? Which How hypocritical is that? How does that? Well, it's going to play out which, okay which for the part? Democrats. Which, <laughs> which hypocrisy are we talking about? Mm, GOP congressional candidate said U.S. suffered since women's suffrage praised... Organization working to repeal 19th Amendment. A little more specific. <laughs> this particular one, him, you, what you said is a, is a plus what? It was a plus nine? I mean, look, it's somewhere between D plus five to D plus nine. Peter Meyer could have held it. This yeah. guy is not going to win. You, when we started this segment, you said we're going to talk about uh, weak candidates and bad candidates. I said, which one? Because there's such a plethora to choose from, right? On, on the Senate side, it's going to be incredibly frustrating. 
for Mitch McConnell, because not only does he have some very bad candidates in places that should be wins for the uh, Republicans, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada. I mean, it's just go on and on. But he also has a uh, very bad chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, where there's a bunch of money missing that nobody knows where it's gone. And there's a bunch of misspending that people want, donors want clarified. So Mitch McConnell has had to come to the rescue. And all of this, all of this are the seeds planted by Donald Trump. Having the election deniers, having conspiracy theorists, having Herschel Walker, having all of these people, Mehmet Oz, that is a result of what of, of what uh, Donald Trump has, the havoc he's wreaked on the Republican Party. And I'd also tell you, so he's got, you've got all these really bad candidates, you've got a really bad chair of the NRSC, and then you've got people who used to be good candidates, like Marco Rubio, yeah, coming back. you know, becoming, you know, trying to figure out how to become more MAGA. Marco Rubio, who has spent all of his career talking about against communists and against socialism, railing for TPS for Venezuelans, is now railing against the Venezuelans who are suing Ron DeSantis for using them as a political prop. What happened, Marco? You used to be the Republican savior. Now you're the Republican vergüenza. Shame. Thanks for the translation. <laughs> it's Hispanic it. Heritage yeah. Month. There's, I could teach you a few words this month. <laughs> this is my month. I'm taking it. I'm embracing it. Listen, to, to, to um, Anna's point, it, it it's, has become um, tougher and tougher with every single day to say that the Republican Party is not the party of what you guys are saying. Because there are people say, no, that's not the party, but... Today, I decided to forgive you. Not because the you apologized terrorist. or because you acknowledged the terrorists pain that you... And traitors. Well, you know, there's a couple of us who are hanging our hats on Lisa Murkowski's re-election, on the, the Susan Collins and the Mitt Romneys and the, the senators who voted for impeachment and will live to tell about it. I mean, Lisa Murkowski, by the way, did I mention the other three words? You know how yeah. I said closed partisan primary? Yeah, guess where they don't have closed partisan primaries? And guess have- where... Guess where the moderate candidates who actually represent the majority of the Republican Party get reelected? Alaska. Okay, I want to say this. Well, I was holding my hat on Liz Cheney, and I now got no hat. All right. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Gibbs' uh, campaign says that, that he believes that women should be allowed to vote and work, and he says this, that John made the site to provoke the left on campus to draw attention to the hypocrisy of, of some modern-day feminists. Uh, it was nothing more than a, a college kid being uh, over the top. So, mm. there you go. What do you think? Mm. I already told you what I think of him. Should I repeat it? No, I just okay. want to make sure you said what you Listen, the response is the reason, the reason. The reason that there's uh, all these issues regarding women voting is because there's a lot of pissed off women. Because you don't take a right that had become an accepted national right for women and take it all of us away all of a sudden we don't you know we as women are reading daily about the 10 year old girl that gets raped that can't get an abortion about the woman who's got to carry a child without a skull and give birth to it about the uh, consequences on ivf about the consequences with birth control and those things have got women in a you know hell knows no fury like a woman's wrath and there's a lot of us who are very angry, particularly because it seems that it's a bunch of old white men like Lindsey Graham, who I bet you could would have a very difficult time being able to identify the different items in a woman's reproductive system if he saw a chart telling women what they're going to do with their bodies. That is why they have an issue with women's suffrage. We'll leave it at that, don't you think, Margaret? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. 
12 refugees in one bedroom apartment in a one bedroom apartment we're going to look at the people helping ukrainians flee from war next and at the top of the hour the special master handpicked by team trump telling them to put up or shut up <laughs> all this week in a series we call champions for change we are highlighting people who are rising to the occasion tearing down barriers and making the world a better place as the war in Ukraine continues, Ann Burnett's champions are helping refugees escape and resettle in the U.S. These three siblings who immigrated from Ukraine years ago are doing whatever they can, including opening their personal homes and providing financial support. Mariupol, Ukraine, last Christmas. Mariupol, Ukraine... One of my pet conspiracy theories is that there's no fucking war in the Ukraine. They're just making it up so they have uh, something to send money to fund both sides. Like they always do. Since the start of the war, more than 7 million people have been forced to flee Ukraine. Alexander Yurisov and his wife Olga were just two of them. They were trapped in Mariupol with their three children. I met the Yurisovs in a park in Brooklyn, New York. Their daughter was about to celebrate her seventh birthday. It was just months after they'd left Ukraine, and at times, it is still so hard for them to even tell their story. An explosion wave took out our front door, and looters came in and took whatever they liked. <laughs> the shell fragments remain in my back, and there is a hole in my head. The Yurisovs escaped thanks to another family who lived 5,000 miles away. He's my childhood friend. We met when we were about five or six years old. Alex Velichko and his siblings, Nick and Angela, came to the United States from Ukraine over the past two decades, and they started a small and now thriving business operating car dealerships. When Putin invaded Ukraine, their lives changed too. We start calling our relatives, friends, asking how they are there, and people were panicking. Yeah, the conditions was really bad. We decided that we have to like help them, get them out from there, somehow. One of the things that sticks with me is that it took the Yurisovs 19 days to get from Mariupol to the Ukraine border. They had three young children, they had an eight-month-old baby. In the early days of the war, when I left Ukraine, along with hundreds of thousands of refugees, it took 19 hours. And it was a grueling experience. And in the context, you think, wow, the suffering that they endured and what they went through, the trauma, is really unimaginable. They first lived in Alex's one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. Hi. One bedroom, one bathroom. And in that space, he and his wife have hosted as many as 12 refugees at once. Of course, we have our challenges. But at the end of it all, I understand that they don't have anything else. They have nowhere to go. I want to go to school as soon as possible. Have you considered going solar in Arizona, but afraid of the huge price tag attached? Most people don't know this, but almost 100%... To build new lives, as you heard those children say, they expect to live here now, maybe for the rest of their lives. Aaron, thank you so much. Again, it's a very inspirational story. We appreciate it, and we will continue to share these inspirational stories. Right.
He had already stoked among his most loyal supporters. Mm. And as they approached yeah, the line, he didn't wave them off. He urged yeah. them on. Yeah. Today, the committee will explain how, as a part of his last-ditch effort to overturn the election and block the transfer of power, Donald Trump summoned a mob to Washington, D.C., and ultimately spurred that mob to wage a violent attack on our democracy. Our colleagues, Ms. Murphy of Florida and Mr. Raskin of Maryland, will lay out this story. First, I'm pleased to recognize our distinguished vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, for any opening comments she'd care to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Our committee did not conduct a hearing last week. But we did conduct an on-the-record interview of President Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. If you have watched these hearings, you've heard us call for Mr. Cipollone to come forward to testify. He did. And Mr. Cipollone's testimony met our expectations. We will save for our next hearing President Trump's behavior during the violence of January 6th. Today's hearing will take us from December 14th, 2020, when the Electoral College met and certified the results of the 2020 presidential election up through the morning of January 6th. You will see certain segments of Pat Cipollone's testimony today. We will also see today how President Trump summoned a mob to Washington and how the president's stolen election lies provoked that mob to attack the Capitol. And we will hear from a man who was induced by President Trump's lies to come to Washington and join the mob and how that decision has changed his life. This is the January 6th committee Today's hearing, Today's hearing seven. is our seventh. We have covered significant ground over the past several weeks, and we have also seen a change in how witnesses and lawyers in the Trump orbit approach this committee. Initially, their strategy in some cases appeared to be to deny and delay. Today, there appears to be a general recognition that the committee has established key facts including that virtually everyone close to President Trump, his Justice Department officials, his White House advisors, his White House counsel, his campaign, all told him the 2020 election was not stolen. This appears to have changed the strategy for defending Donald Trump. Now the argument seems to be that President Trump was manipulated by others outside the administration that he was persuaded to ignore his closest advisors and that he was incapable of telling right from wrong. This new strategy is to try to blame only John Eastman or Sidney Powell or Congressman Scott Perry or others and not President Trump. In this version, the president was, quote, poorly served by these outside advisors. The strategy is to blame people his advisors called, quote, the crazies for what Donald Trump did. This, of course, is nonsense. President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. Just like everyone else in our country, he is responsible for his own actions and his own choices. As our investigation has shown... Donald Trump had access yes, to more detailed and specific information showing that the election was not actually stolen than almost any other American. And he was told this over and over again. No rational or sane man in his position 
could disregard that information and reach the opposite conclusion. And Donald Trump cannot escape responsibility by being willfully blind. Nor can any argument of any kind excuse President Trump's behavior during the violent attack on January 6th. As you watch our hearing today, I would urge you to keep your eye on two specific points. First, you will see evidence that Trump's legal team, led by Rudy Giuliani, knew that they lacked actual evidence of widespread fraud sufficient to prove that the election was actually stolen. They knew it, but they went ahead with January 6th anyway. And second, consider how millions of Americans were persuaded to believe what Donald Trump's closest advisors in his administration did not. These Americans did not have access to the truth like Donald Trump did. They put their faith and their trust in Donald Trump. They wanted to believe in him. They wanted to fight for their country. And he deceived them. For millions of Americans, that may be painful to accept, but it is true. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. It started when brain fog nearly got me killed up here at 9,000 feet. So if you're over 40, 50, or 60 years old. Without objection, the chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy, and the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin, for opening statements. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that then-President Donald Trump lost in a free and fair election. And yet, President Trump insisted that his loss was due to fraud in the election process, rather than to the democratic will of the voters. The president continued to make this claim despite being told again and again by the courts, by the Justice Department, by his campaign officials, and by some of his closest advisors that the evidence did not support this assertion. This was the big lie, and millions of Americans were deceived by it. Too many of our fellow citizens still believe it to this day. It's corrosive to our country and damaging to our democracy. As our committee has shown in prior hearings, following the election, President Trump relentlessly pursued multiple interlocking lines of effort, all with a single goal, to remain in power. Everybody should ask Trump on social media and on film if they can get it exclamation point ask him have you conceded yet question mark question mark despite having lost the lines of effort were at his loyal vice president ask trump this question on at state election and elected officials, and at the U.S. Department of Justice. The president pressured the vice president to obstruct the process to certify the election result. He demanded that state officials find him enough votes to overturn the election outcome in that state, and he pressed the Department of Justice to find widespread evidence of fraud. When justice officials told the president that such evidence did not exist, The president urged them to simply declare that the election was corrupt. On December 14th, the Electoral College met to officially confirm that Joe Biden would be the next president. 
The evidence shows that once this occurred, President Trump and those who were willing to aid and abet him turned their attention to the joint session of Congress scheduled for January 6th, at which the vice president would preside. In their warped view, this ceremonial event was the next, and perhaps the last, inflection point that could be used to reverse the outcome of the election before Mr. Biden's inauguration. As President Trump put it, the vice president and enough members of Congress simply needed to summon the courage to act. To help them find that courage, the president called for backup. Early in the morning of December 19th, the president sent out a tweet urging his followers to travel to Washington, D.C. for January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild, the president wrote. As my colleague, Mr. Raskin, will describe in detail, this tweet served as a call to action and in some cases as a call to arms for many of President Trump's most loyal supporters. Hi, January 6th, CMTE, exclamation point. Why haven't you even mentioned expelling the almost 150 traitors in your midst? Question mark, question mark. They organized it with Trump. So charge them. Exclamation point. Question mark. Hurry up and charge them with insurrection, comma, and do your job in the Congress. to pass H.R. 25, comma, legislation to invoke the 14th Amendment and get rid of them, all, comma, and bar them all from office. It's clear the president intended the assembled crowd on the January 6th to serve his poll. And as you've already seen, and as you will see again today, some of those who were coming had specific plans. The president's goal was to stay in power for a second term despite losing the election. The assembled crowd was one of the tools to achieve that goal. And in today's hearing, we will focus on events that took place in the final weeks leading up to January 6th, starting in mid-December. And we'll add color and context to evidence you've already heard about, and we'll also provide additional new evidence. For example, you'll hear about meetings in which the president entertained extreme measures designed to help him stay in power, like the seizure of voting machines. We will show some of the coordination that occurred between the White House and members of Congress as it relates to January 6th. And some of these members of Congress would later seek pardons. We will also examine some of the planning for the January 6th protests, placing special emphasis on one rally planner's concerns about the potential violence. And we will describe some of the president's key actions on the evening of January 5th and the morning of January 6th, including how the president edited and ad-libbed his speech that morning at the Ellipse, directed the crowd to march to the Capitol, and spoke off script in a way that further inflamed 
an already angry crowd. I yield to the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Massey. Thank you, Ms. Murphy, Mr. Chairman, Madam Vice Chair. Four days after the electors met across the country and made Joe Biden the president-elect, Donald Trump was still trying to find a way to hang on to the presidency. Friday, December 18th, his team of outside advisors paid him a surprise visit in the White House that would quickly become the stuff of legend. The meeting has been called unhinged, not normal, and the craziest meeting of the Trump presidency. The outside lawyers who've been involved in dozens of failed lawsuits had lots of theories supporting the big lie, but no evidence to support it. As we will see, however, they brought to the White House a draft executive order that they had prepared for President Trump to further his ends. Specifically, they proposed the immediate mass seizure of state election machines by the U.S. military. The meeting ended after midnight with apparent rejection of that idea. In the wee hours of December 19th, dissatisfied with his options, Donald Trump decided to call for a large and wild crowd on Wednesday, January 6th, the day when Congress would meet to certify the electoral votes. Never before in American history had a president called for a crowd to come contest the counting of electoral votes by Congress or engaged in any effort designed to influence, delay, or obstruct the joint session of Congress in doing its work required by our Constitution and the Electoral Count Act. As we'll see, Donald Trump's 1.42 a.m. tweet electrified and galvanized his supporters, especially the dangerous extremists and the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and other racist and white nationalist groups spoiling for a fight against the government. Three rings of interwoven attack were now operating towards January 6th. On the inside ring, Trump continued trying to work to overturn the election by getting Mike Pence to abandon his oath of office as vice president and assert the unilateral power to reject electoral votes. This would have been a fundamental and unprecedented breach of the Constitution that would promise Trump multiple ways of staying in office. Meanwhile, in the middle ring, members of domestic violent extremist groups created an alliance both online and in person to coordinate a massive effort to storm, invade, and occupy the Capitol. By placing a target on the joint session of Congress, Trump had mobilized these groups around a common goal, emboldening them, strengthening their working relationships, and helping build their numbers. Finally, in the outer ring, on January 6th, there assembled a large and angry crowd, the political force that Trump considered both the touchstone and the measure of his political power. Here were thousands of enraged Trump followers, thoroughly convinced by the big lie, who traveled from across the country to join Trump's wild rally to stop the steal. With the proper incitement by political leaders and the proper instigation from the extremists, many members of this crowd could be led to storm the Capitol, confront the vice president in Congress, and try to overturn the 2020 election results. All of these efforts would converge and explode on January the 6th. You're going to pretend to be my friend for a minute, and I'm FaceTiming you because I, I don't want to talk to anybody, but I'm going to talk to somebody, and it's probably going to be myself. So... As you can tell, I'm crying, and I'm going through a separation with my children's dad. Um, we've been together 
innocent of your kids. And you have a 10 and 8-year-old. Love them. But I think what broke is growing up, I was always a caretaker. Babysat my sisters. Then I became a mom at 17. And I've been taking care of people. But I got lost in that. And then I got lost in begging for help. <laughs> and wanting, you know, teamwork out of a relationship. And I overcommunicated, I guess. I I just wanted respect. I wanted help, teamwork, and I guess I asked the wrong ways. And I don't know. But now here we are. Uh 14 years later, and this is it. I, I would want nothing more than a family, but I can't hold on to no change, and I can't be blamed for everything. Um, I tried. I, I was the wife that wasn't married. I made the dinners. I took care of the kids. I cleaned up the house. My room was a mess. That's depression for you. And all that mattered is what people could see. That's how I looked at it. You can't see my room. My room's a mess because I'm a mess. Because I'm lost. And I tried to be there for everybody and to what a mom does and what a partner does. A girlfriend totally does. burned out. <clears throat> it was not enough. Women are burned out. I wouldn't want anyone to feel like this. So if your partner is communicating with you that they want respect or that they need help or they have to keep telling you what, what to do. And that sounds like you're being demanding, but it's, it's guiding you because some people grow faster than others, and all they want to do is help. Just help your partner. It's that easy. You're going to pretend to be my friend for a minute, and I'm FaceTiming you because I, I don't... Hey, yo, New York is crazy! So I'm on the subway, right, minding my business, as one does, right? And this guy comes in. He comes in strong. With a purpose. No shirt. Muscles just rippling out of his body. His pants all the way down to his knees. All the way down. What? Boxes showing. Everything but in his what? eye. In his eye, you can tell something's not right. You can tell something's not right. Next thing you know, he throws down his, his suitcase and then picks the littlest man and starts wailing on him. And the little guy's like, no, no. He starts running. I'm like, what? What? Little guy runs all the way to the other side of the train and tries to get out his locks. Why do you do that? Why do you lock some of the doors? Oh my God, so he's locked. And and big dude, big dude, boom, boom, starts wailing on him. Lifts little guy up like a backpack. Lifts this grown man like a backpack. And slams him down like it's the WWE. And what does everybody do? They quietly get up and walk the other way. Now, on one hand, I get it. You don't want to die either. But on the other hand, there's like, you can't just... So I yell, stop from across the train. Stop. Because apparently I'm the only one who thinks to say stop. Because at this point, poor little guy, he's in the air a second time. About to be slammed down again. And I just can't 
Scott can't sit by and watch anymore. But me yelling, Scott gives him enough time to get away. He gets away, he does and does. He starts running back to me. I'm like, come on. But so he runs back to me. I'm like, just go to the other train. Just go through. And I, I, I got him through. And then I, I stand in the way. I'm like, am I going to die on this hill? Is this the hill I'm going <laughs> to die on? But that door is locked too. Why do you lock the doors? It doesn't make any sense. So now we're all trapped in the corner. And this drunk white girl's like, yo, stop. She must have had so much to drink because she had no care in the world for her life. She's like, babe, stop. He's fragile. Don't fight him. And mind you, little man is not fighting back because he's got scoliosis like crazy. How do I know? I felt it when I tried to guide him to the other side and failed miserably. But then, big dude pulls out a weapon. I don't know if it's a knife or a needle, but it's sharp. And I'm like, oh no, baby, no. What do you need a weapon for? He's so small with scoliosis. He's running away. He can't even reach your face. Why? Drunk white girl is unfazed. Puts herself in between them immediately. I was like, wow. And she's like, put that away. Just put that away. Put that away and let's all just go home. Little man, bop, bop, dodges again, runs to the other side. So I go, stop, just stop. Come on, leave him alone. He's fragile. Me, I try to, like, kind of accidentally put myself in the way to slow the big guy down a little bit, but hopefully not die myself. Finally, the train stops. Little guy's at the door, like, open up, open up, open up. He gets out. He runs. He runs to the other side. I'm like, go, baby, go, baby, go. He runs to the next train. He's safe. He's home free. The guy, big guy with no shirt, sits down. Like, nothing happened. The white girl looks at herself in the reflection and says, Oh my God, people say I look like Paris Hilton. I do not look like Paris Hilton. I don't know who she's talking to. And I'm shaking. I don't know heaven. I'm never riding the train again. Hey, yo, <laughs> New York is crazy. So I'm on the subway, right? Minding my business, as one does, right? And this guy comes in. He comes in strong with a purpose. No shirt, muscles, just rippling out of his body, his pants all the way down to his knees, all the way down. You tell a story really well. Exclamation point. As you know better than any other member of this committee from the wrenching struggle for voting rights in your beloved Mississippi, the problem of politicians whipping up mob violence to destroy fair elections is the oldest domestic enemy of constitutional democracy in America. Abraham Lincoln knew it too. In 1837, a racist mob in Alton, Illinois, broke into the offices of an abolitionist newspaper and killed its editor, Elijah Lovejoy. Lincoln wrote a speech in which he said that no transatlantic military giant could ever crush us as a nation, even with all of the fortunes in the world. But if downfall ever comes to America, he said, we ourselves would be its author and finisher. If racist mobs are encouraged by politicians to rampage and terrorize, Lincoln said, they will violate the rights of other citizens and quickly destroy the bonds of social trust necessary for democracy to work. Mobs and demagogues will put us on a path to political tyranny, Lincoln said. As we'll see today, this very old problem has returned with new ferocity today. Mobs and demagogues. As a president who lost an election deployed a mob which included dangerous extremists to attack the constitutional system of election and the peaceful transfer of power. And as we'll see, 
the creation of the internet and social media has given today's tyrants tools of propaganda and disinformation that yesterday's despots could only have dreamed of. I yield back to the gentle lady from Florida, Ms. Murphy. What a Article beautifully two, written. The United States Constitution establishes the Electoral College. I think he's Each a great writer. Each state's provide that electors are to be great chosen statesman. by a popular vote. And on December 14th, 2020, electors met in all 50 states in the District of Columbia to cast their votes. Joseph Biden won by a margin of 306 to 232. The election was over. Mr. Biden was the president-elect. Before the Electoral College met, Donald Trump and his allies filed dozens of legal challenges to the election, but they lost over and over again, including in front of multiple judges President Trump had nominated to the bench. In many of these cases, the judges were highly critical of the arguments put forward, explaining that no genuine evidence of widespread fraud had been presented. For example, a federal judge in Pennsylvania said, this court has been presented with strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations unsupported by evidence. In the United States of America, this cannot justify the disenfranchisement of a single voter, let alone all the voters of its sixth most populated state. Indicted 147 plus Congress members who orchestrated the January 6th insurrection along with Mr. Trump, question mark. Lock them all up. Now. Exclamation point. And bar them all from office. Comma. On December 15th, after the Electoral College certified the outcome, the Republican Majority Leader in the Senate acknowledged Mr. Biden's victory. Yesterday, electors met in all 50 states. So, as of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice-president-elect. Many millions of us had hoped the presidential election would yield a different result. But our system of government has processes to determine who will be sworn in on January the 20th. The Electoral College has spoken. So today, I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. Even members of President Trump's cabinet and his White House staff understood the significance of his losses in the courts and the absence of evidence of fraud. They also respected the constitutional certification by the Electoral College. Many of them told President Trump that it was time to concede the election to Mr. Biden. For example, then-Secretary of Labor, Gene Scalia, an accomplished lawyer and the son of late Justice Scalia, called President Trump in mid-December and advised him to concede and accept the rulings of the courts. And so I had put a call into the president. I might have called on the 13th. We spoke, I believe, on the 14th, in which um, I conveyed to him that I uh, thought that it was time for him to acknowledge that uh, President Biden had prevailed in the election. But I communicated to the president that uh, when that legal process is exhausted and when the electors are, have voted, that that's the point at which that outcome needs to be expected. I told him that I did believe, yes, that once the, those legal processes were run, uh, if fraud had not been established, 